last few months on Lean Out, we've been doing a deep dive into the crisis in Canadian media, speaking to critics of the status quo and asking what's gone wrong and where we go from here. My guest on today's program, the last episode in our summer media series, has a unique perspective on our media's collapse. And he says government and big tech subsidies are compromising the vitality and validity of a free and independent press in Canada. Rudyard Griffiths is the executive director of The Hub and the co-founder and chair of The Monk Debates. Rudyard Griffiths is my guest today on Lean Out. Richard, welcome to Lean Out. Hey, pleasure to be here. Very nice to have you on the program today for this last episode of our summer media series. I think you have a unique perspective on what's going on with the collapse of Canadian media as the executive director of the Startup The Hub, but also, of course, as the co-founder and chair of the Monk Debates, which includes a lot of journalists and as a senior fellow at the Monk School for Global Affairs and Public Policy. Everyone I have spoken to for this series so far seems to agree that the Canadian media is in crisis. You just published a piece, an op-ed, with the headline, The Canadian Media is in Crisis. In your view, what has gone wrong? Wow, that is uh, more than a $64 million question these days, unfortunately. Um, Look, I think there's a variety of Factors and forces we're all familiar with, uh, the disruption of the underlying you know, business model of a lot of legacy media in Canada by the big platforms, maybe to me more worrying, uh, changing you know, attitudes amongst the public about information in the public square and what's legitimate, you know, what's not, and a kind of growing cynicism or reaction at times against so-called mainstream media and you know i think that maybe the third leg of the stool uh, the hangman's stool that you know a lot of canadian media is standing on right now has to be a set of government policies that i think have been enacted with goodwill but nonetheless have in some ways compounded those other factors and forces in terms of uh, increasing government subsidies which i think are undermining public confidence in a lot of the mainstream press and really aren't encouraging or facilitating the kind of transformation of the industry that's probably required. They're kind of freezing it in this painful status quo, a status quo of attrition, attrition of talent, attrition of resources. So I think all these things together are, are kind of, you know, as we enter into the fall of 2023, are kind of emerging as a a perfect storm. And I, I think, unfortunately, we are going to see in the coming months um, some of the damage of that storm become more manifest and, and real. And uh, this is you know, one of the big national issues we're going to have to uh, address. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's a huge story this summer for sure. And you and your editor-at-large, Sean Spear, you recently penned a piece, the one that I just referred to, talking about the state of the news media in this country and also our future and referring specifically to Bill C-18, which you have published on in the past, you've been critical of. The piece that I was just referring to starts with the premise of the two of you thinking about what you would say were you to participate in a podcast conversation about the state of our media. So here we are, we're doing exactly that. (laughs) Walk me through um, the key arguments you make in those two pieces about your criticism of C-18 in particular. Right. So that criticism, I think, is really founded on the basis of uh, two of the key points that we've, we've just discussed. Number one, that we are quickly going down the road of uh, a Canadian media industry, most notably here, news and journalism, that will exist and survive on the basis of uh, a subsidy culture. Uh, you know, in film and television, in the arts in Canada, we're, we're very familiar with that culture. It's longstanding. It's multi-decade. But it's something new for the media. It started with, you know, payroll tax credits, which are not insignificant, up, upwards of, you know, 20% of payroll costs in, in most newsrooms uh, across Canada. And then with the advent of the C-18 and the online News Act, you know, potential subsidies now coming from big tech, from the platforms, would, would take that total subsidy up to roughly 50% of total newsroom costs. And look, I think anybody, regardless of your political orientation or worldview, the idea that a free and independent press should be majority funded by big government and big tech, uh, that is not uh, a healthy scenario. Um, That's not a solution. That's a Band-Aid at best. And I think it could be, in some ways, a kind of slow-acting poison or nerve agent on the the vitality and validity of uh, a free and independent press in Canada. So, I mean, I think that's our, our first argument is that we're we're moving towards a, a solution here, which is really one of mass subsidy. And and I think the media is different. It's not film and television production. It's a it's a different um, it's a different beast. It performs a different function, and, and it has to exist in a different way for it to have legitimacy in standing with the Canadian public. And I guess just the final point is, you know, these subsidies freeze, in a sense, innovation. And they do overwhelmingly go to incumbents. So to that extent, the status quo is reaffirmed. And in in many cases, these are large legacy, you know, for-profit corporations that are used to taking government subsidies, used to rent-seeking, and are probably pretty happy with that status quo for reasons you know, not always related to the quality or substance of the news or journalism itself. They're satisfied because it corresponds to you know, the for-profit business model that they're operating under and shareholder uh, you know, pressures and expectations. So again, I, I worry about a kind of an unhealthy alignment of interest between a government that you know I think is legitimately casting around for solutions, unfortunately has focused on this one of large-scale subsidy, and then very large, big corporations, 
some of which news and journalism is really an add-on to much larger businesses and telecommunications primarily, uh, who look on these subsidies and say, great, bring them on. And we'll continue to create news and journalism, not as a core, the essence of what we do, but as an ancillary product um, paid for by government and, and big tech. Uh, not a great scenario to be in. Mm. And the the innovation piece is a really important piece to talk about. And I want to get to that more broadly speaking in the Canadian context in a moment. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about The Hub. The Hub is a charitable startup that launched during the pandemic, a website mainly for news and analysis of public policy issues and events, but actually covering pretty diverse range of topics as well. It does seem to be fairly successful so far. Tell me about the need you think the hub serves in the Canadian media market and how your business model operates. Yeah, so look, we very purposely um, structured the hub as a charity because what we knew that we were doing in terms of our focus on, on public policy you know, analysis and insights, you know, is, is not a is not sustainable as a for-profit model. It would be a market failure. It would be one very quickly. One, because our audience uh, is influential, but it's niche. And two, because the tenor and the style of, you know, and substance of our content is really one of seriousness, objectivity, you know, long form presentation of, you know, ideas and insights, all things that are not very popular in the current, you know, media and kind of technology environment. So definitely swimming upstream, but interestingly, you know, by structuring this as a, a charitable entity, those were, were not subject to, you know, the same uh, market pressures, right? That we have combination of uh, individual donors and larger foundations who are supporting us because of, the focus of our work and and how we we undertake it and uh, you know again the style and the substance um, and and they're not looking for a return on investment they're in a sense looking for a a public a public good impact so for us as a kind of as a niche provider working in a very specific and uh, delineated kind of field interacting and engaging with a, um, a narrower audience, this model has really worked for us. We've seen uh, terrific growth on our program in two and a half years. We're now reaching uh, in excess of you know, 200,000 unique listeners, readers, video, video views uh, a week. And growth is, uh, is steady. This, this summer, in fact, has been... Um, you know, our strongest three months in the last uh, two and a half years. So we think there's more growth ahead. Are we, are we able, do we have the resources, the audience, you know, to scale into a, a substitute for a lot of the big existing, you know, mainstream media providers? I would say, you know, the jury is still out on that, but it'll certainly be harder for us to, to scale um, simply because there aren't that many foundations, there's a limit on the number of individual donors that will, you know, support what we do and how we do it. So 
we're not holding ourselves forward as the be all and end all, a kind of solution to the, the Canadian media crisis. But I do think that our model is one that we're seeing other people embrace the not for profit or charitable model of delivery. And if you had a hundred or a thousand hubs, you know, all focusing on different different content areas and different audiences, and we're doing that in the same kind of public spirited way, um, you know, insulated uh, as best they can from, you know, the temptations of clickbait and inciting, you know, division and anger and polarization, which unfortunately is the the hallmarks of a lot of uh, online news startups these days, both on the right and the left. Then I then I can see a potentially brighter future for Canadian media, but that's only going to come about if change is allowed to come about. And what I worry about the current policy response is that it does seem very focused on sustaining a status quo. Mm. And, and to your point about growth from a moment ago, I mean, one of the things that became clear during the Senate hearings on C-18 is that much of the innovation and the growth in media in this country is really happening in the independent press and in the digital realm. So one, just one example, Holly Doan of Black Locks Reporter, in her interview with me, mm-hmm. she, she quotes a Department of Heritage document that showed that since the beginning of the pandemic, while 78 news outlets have closed, in that same period, 57 local news outlets have launched. When you look around at the media ecosphere in this country, in terms of the startup space, what are some of the bright spots that you see in terms of outlets and trends? Yeah, well, n- number one, I mean, here's the irony is that we could never have had the success that we've enjoyed now after two and a half years without access to primarily actually to meta and uh, platforms like like Facebook, but Twitter, Twitter also. Um, It's a horrible buzzword, but I'll use it. Uh, Discoverability, you know, traditionally that was a really hard thing to to figure out as an online news startup. What, you know, what the heck were you going to do? How would your audience find you? Well, using the platforms uh, in our case uh, to to take our content and then put small incremental ad spends uh, behind it and then target audiences that we thought would be interested in what we had to say and how we were saying it, that allowed us to create increasingly an audience at scale that then reaps all kinds of other benefits for us. And we simply could not have done that without access to to the platforms and the ability not simply to passively organically have people discover us, but actually go out and put small ad spends against content to, to actually ensure that, that, that the forest is heard, uh, the tree, sorry, is heard when it, when it falls in the forest. Now, just an aside, the interesting thing is despite, you know, Meta taking a very hard line on C18 and um, stopping news sharing and posting on its platforms. Yeah, I mean, this may rancor a lot of a lot of people in the, in the media, but nothing is stopping any media group from doing exactly what we do, which is to take their content and put very small ad spends uh, against it and to have it large, widely distributed and shared and commented on uh, within Meta's platforms. I know that's not what the intention of the act 
was, uh, or, and I appreciate that many media organizations, especially smaller ones, don't necessarily have the resources to do that. But I, I just mentioned that there is still a critical service that we're getting from Meta that's essential to, you know, the strategy for success that, that, that we're pursuing. Um, so I guess my, my view may be a bit different than the legacy media, the large incumbents. These platforms are hugely beneficial to us, so beneficial to the extent that we're happy to pay them to help us discover audience, just like any other business would pay any other advertiser what they felt was a fair price to uh, find a consumer or a buyer for their product or service. We're doing exactly the same thing. So I think this whole debate that we're having now is often sometimes very complicated and convoluted, where at the end of the day, maybe it's actually very simple, which is news as a product, service like anything else, and you pay to advertise your services to find consumers for all kinds of other products and services, so why not news also? Um, so that would be point number one. Point number two, yeah, I agree. There are a lot of smaller, especially what I sense is smaller, like geographically community-based news outlets that are doing uh, a great job covering uh, local news. And they're doing this, in most cases, without government funding, without payroll subsidies, which overwhelmingly is a share of the total public expenditure. Those are overwhelmingly going to the big incumbents, which overwhelmingly, with the exception of you know the CBC, are you know for-profit companies like, uh, like Bell, like Bell Canada. A company that generates billions of dollars a year in revenue. So, yeah, I think there's, especially with the you know this this critical issue of you know how do people stay informed, uh, aware of their community and the issues that it faces and the solutions that uh, are being put forward to address you know community challenges. I, I think in some ways the future for local news could be the brightest where where the hub's playing is, and maybe more where there's a gap is, well, how do you scale from local to regional to, to, you know, coverage of national, you know, national issues and, and national affairs uh, in a way that, you know, has the same depth and breadth that I'll acknowledge it, that the, the mainstream legacy providers like the Globe and Mail or Post Media, uh, I mean, they provide that. Uh, they have reporters across Canada. They have newsrooms. They have all kinds of things that uh, right now we just can't contemplate because we don't have the resources to scale to that size. And uh, talking about the legacy press, again, just looking at the big picture in this country, I want to spend a moment on viewpoint diversity. This is something I've written and, and spoken about a lot. One of the complaints that I hear from the public really often is how ideologically slanted they perceive our legacy media to be. And um, I think there's a lot of debate about reasons why this might be, but I, I think this is fairly accepted that this is a view that is out there right now in the Canadian public. I, I know people working in the media throughout the country, many would concede that after 2020, the Overton window did narrow, the range of acceptable viewpoints and topics for discussion narrowed. I, I want to just 
ask about the monk debates because the monk debates has really pushed back on that. And I'm thinking, for example, about debates you held on two very taboo subjects, whether Canada was a systemically racist country and whether the government should mandate use of COVID-19 vaccines. You have managed to tackle these very controversial topics that others will not touch, but still maintaining the respect for the monk debates. Why do you think you've managed to pull that off? Well, I think it's partly the market failure for that type of content. Um, so, you know, I think there are people out there, you sound like one of them, uh, who genuinely has an open mind, wants to hear two sides of an issue, is a responsible adult that will make up, you know, form your own conclusions. And I think part of the reaction off of the mainstream press is it just seems so relentless in, in terms of amplifying one point of view as if people aren't sophisticated enough to hear a contrary or at times, let's even say an extreme argument and come to a sensible judgment about the extremism of that argument. Uh, in other words, there's a, to me, a kind of creeping paternalism in a lot of mainstream media, which I think genuinely and understandably is really frustrating to, uh, you know, to listeners and viewers who, who are intelligent, informed adults and, and don't need their hands, you know, held. Um, uh, seemingly at every instance. So I think that's part of why the Monk Debates uh, has, you know, succeeds at this and why we have, you know, an active audience and you know, over 100,000, you know, subscribers on our platform. I think the other thing, to be fair, is that we are a debate and, and we provide both sides of the issue. So we use a convention which is debate, pro and con, for and against, that to a certain degree insulates us against some of the criticism, let's say, that a media organization might have in featuring only one view, either in a profile or an op-ed or something. Because we're providing both views at once, it's hard for our critics to say, they do still say it sometimes, you know, you shouldn't even, you shouldn't have platformed that person. You know, they deserve to be or that view or that argument should be deplatformed in all and every circumstance. And we'll have that debate with people every, every day of the week. Um, obviously there are some views which we will never feature focus on, on, uh, at the monk debates. And I'm a big supporter of Canada's, uh, hate speech laws and in many ways they compared to the United States, I think are important because they provide us with a clear sense of what the boundaries are of free speech. And, and I think in some very limited cases, such as the incitement of hate or violence, there should be and must be uh, limits on free speech. So don't get us wrong at the monk debates. We are not free speech absolutists, but we do absolutely believe that there's a whole range of perspectives and ideas that deserve debate. And we think people are adult enough and sophisticated enough to make up their own minds. I want to end just by touching on public trust in media, which is very low in this country. Um, the latest data from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism just found that 37% of Canadians say they trust most news most of the time. That's very low. We can't talk about uh, trust in media without talking about the Monk debate, which was held on that issue in which Matt Taibbi and Douglas Murray um, arguing for the resolution don't trust the mainstream media. One, that was an astonishing night to be present for. What did you learn that evening on that stage about the causes of lost public trust in our media? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think the big thing that really struck me was the extent to which Malcolm Gladwell and, and uh, Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times kind of showed up almost thinking that they'd won the debate before it had even started. There was just a presumption of of uh, the inherent rightness of their argument that the mainstream media is absolutely a subject of you know sincere trust and uh, unbiased, uh, unvarnished opinion. And that you know, I, I think there's elements within the mainstream media that under, kind of fail to understand that that's something that needs to be you know renewed and earned every day. And that just because you write for the New York Times, it doesn't mean that you can or shouldn't be the subject of you know self-criticism and self-introspection. Um, so I think there is, I think that debate to me just in some ways exposed a bit of the the arrogance of um, of the mainstream media and Matt Taibbi, you know, Twitter files fame and Douglas Murray, you know, albeit. A, at times, a you know a controversial UK kind of pundit and writer, uh, I think, eviscerated the other side, largely because of that sense of supposed inevitability that the mainstream media often feels and expresses about its uh, its essentialism uh, vis-a-vis democracy, vis-a-vis uh, free and open press, and I I just think. You know, the mainstream media needs to get hungry like the independents and, you know, could work a little bit harder and could think a little bit more just about how the other side, how those skeptics out there are looking and feeling about them and then try to respond to that. Um, I think that's what I took away from that debate. Mm. And that leads me very well into my last question, which I've been asking everyone in this series. And and that is simply, how does the Canadian media regain the trust of the public? Yeah, well, that's tough. I mean, I I think it it's going to come about through a change in the media itself. You know, what's Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If we're simply going to expect that we can have the same legacy mainstream media, especially these these entities embedded in these much larger kind of information and technology conglomerates and think that uh, somehow this is all going to self-correct and Humpty Dumpty will just miraculously put his, him or herself or they self uh, back together again. Uh, it's not going to happen. Um, I could imagine a world of more independence, smaller producers, a kind of cottage industry of news as opposed to the current model of, you know, industrial scale production um, with a with a lot of choice because there's simply these a lot of different sources. And in addition to having a diversity of sources, um, a diversity of business models, some for-profit, some not-for-profit, some charitable. And I do think the people that work in media, journalists, editors, publishers, look, we all, we all want to do, do right. We're with the exception of some, some bad actors. (laughs) There's really some, 
bad actors out there, but they are the minority. People who work in this industry, they're there because they love it and they, they love journalism. They love the pursuit of the capital T truth. Um, and I, I think there's an incredible amount of goodwill and energy and excitement, but we just need to to say goodbye to the model and approach that we have now. We need regulation and reform and government policy that that does that. And I just think, unfortunately, what we're seeing in terms of C-18 and some of the other media bills that have come out over the last uh, 12 months is just a relentless uh, attempt to kind of hold the line, to stand there with our finger in the dike. And I, I worry, I worry that that dike is going to burst and we're woefully un- unprepared. Well, I definitely share those worries myself. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the program today, participating in this series of, of us in the media, trying to think through this issue and trying to, to figure out where we go from here. So wonderful to have you on. Thanks so much. My pleasure. And uh, listeners, shameless plug, www.thehub.ca. Check us out. Tell us what you think. We'd, uh, we'd love your eyeballs and earlobes uh, on our content. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at Tara Henley. Dot substack.com. Dot